You know, I think that it's important to recognize that, you know, in some ways the lack of democracy in Myanmar, the struggle with military rule, sits downstream of a more profound challenge to do with nation building and, you know, the legacies of British imperialism and the difficulty of forging a unified state across the current geographic span of Myanmar. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast out of Johns Hopkins University. In the early hours of February 1st, 2021, Myanmar's military staged a coup d'etat against its democratically elected government. Myanmar's de facto civilian leader, Aung Suu Kyi, was arrested alongside Myanmar's president and dozens of other civilian officials. By the afternoon, the military had announced the imposition of a one-year state of emergency in which supreme legislative, executive, and judicial power would be granted to a senior general of the military, Min Aung Lang. In the weeks since, thousands of Burmese people have taken to the streets to protest the coup and demand a return to civilian rule. How have the lives of those in Myanmar changed since the coup? What are the prospects for a return to civilian rule? And in what ways have geopolitics affected international response? To help us answer these questions, today on the podcast, we're joined by Mr. Sebastian Strangio. Sebastian Strangio is the Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat. His writing has been featured in leading publications, including Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, The Diplomat, and Nikkei Asian Review, among many other publications. He is the author of Hun Sun's Cambodia, a path-breaking examination of Cambodia since the fall of the Khmer Rouge, as well as In the Dragon Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. We are excited to have Sebastian on today's podcast. Well, hi, Sebastian. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Just to get us started, would you situate our listeners by briefly walking us through the events of the February 1st coup d'etat in Myanmar? Early on the morning of February the 1st, the Myanmar military, or Tatmadaw, um, you know, launched a series of arrests uh, of, you know, of key government officials and essentially seized control of the government. Um, they launched a coup d'etat that you know, led to the arrest of many of the um, uh, you know, sitting members of government um, and abrogated the result of the no- national elections held in November, which saw a landslide victory for the National League of Democracy, and uh, which is led by Aung San Suu Kyi. So, so basically, you know, uh, you know, the country is now returned to uh, military rule a decade after the military's sort of, you know, began political reforms and civilianized the government. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the military is back in control in Myanmar. And, you know, m- most of us are sort of trying to grapple with the the fallout from this and what it means for the, you know, the country's longer term future. So the de facto civilian leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, was arrested during the coup, as you said, and then she was later charged with illegally importing communications equipment. But do we know anything about her exact whereabouts right now? Not exactly. It's clear that she's in some sort of detention. Um, the military have her in custody. She was supposed to appear in in court for the first time yesterday, February the 15th, um, but that has now been delayed until tomorrow, the 17th. And so, you know, she's likely to appear in court in Napidaw to have the charges formally read out to her. We're not sure if she's going to make any sort of statement. Um, obviously, you know, the, the onset of the military coup has, you know, um, Proceeded alongside of a, uh, you know, been justified on the basis of a state of emergency that has been declared by the, the, <clears throat> the military, and, and so a lot of the normal procedures, uh, you know, legal procedures have sort of been uh, upended, and it's unclear exactly, you know, what access the public will have to her, what access her lawyers will have to her, um, 
but yeah, as far as we know, she's she's in custody in Napier, but the exact uh, whereabouts remain unknown. And beyond Misuchi, what other groups of people were arrested during the coup and in the weeks since? So has the focus been primarily on civilian leaders or have prominent figures not associated with the National League for Democracy been arrested as well? Initially, the you know, the authorities focused on detaining you know, members of the parliament that was set to sit for the first time on February the 1st. So, you know, many NLD, elected NLD parliamentarians were detained. The chief ministers of many, the NLD appointed chief ministers of many of the states and regions in Myanmar were also detained. You know, 24 hours or 48 hours after their initial detention, a lot of these people were, were released um, from custody. But ever since then, as protests against the coup have gathered steam, the, you know, the junta has begun um, arresting, expanding, you know, its arrests to include, you know, striking civil servants, um, doctors, particularly who've walked off the job, other officials, um, close, you know, close aides of Aung San Suu Kyi have been detained, um, you know, legal advisors, um, the heads of uh, chief ministers of some of the states and regions, um, and also the chairman of the Union Election Commission. Um, this is important because the you know the pretext for this coup is that there was widespread voter fraud at November's election. This is a claim that the military and its you know political proxy party have been making um, ever since then. Um, and and so that you know even though there's very little evidence to suggest that there was any fraud um, at the election in November, and if there was, it was so insignificant as to have absolutely no bearing on the result. So just as a quick follow up on that. Given that you said that there was very little evidence, how is the military justifying the voter fraud? What what narrative are they trying to give the public? Well, I mean, they're claiming that there was massive voter fraud and that they've, you know, they've they've identified several million instances of irregularities in the process. Um, and so they're trying, you know, they're claiming that they are carrying out this military takeover in, um, you know, in. in under the 2008 constitution, um, they're claiming a constitutional mandate for this takeover. Now, you know, legal experts have, you know, claimed that this is basically bogus, um, given that only the president would be in a position to call such a state of emergency. And this was something that was done by the, um, after the president was already arrested and removed from office. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I think that they, you know, they claim to be um, adhering to the constitution and and that, you know, really all of their actions are in defense of it. Um, but, you know, this is something that, you know, very few people in Myanmar seem to have bought. Um, you know, the, the numbers of people on the streets, the nearly universal opposition to this military takeover, um, you know, suggests that, you know, this is a very flimsy pretext that not many people are accepting. So this discussion of voter fraud and the lack of voter fraud in reality mirrors, of course, conversations in the United States, um, as we're all familiar with, with the 2020 election of President Joe Biden and the claims by former President Donald Trump about um, voter fraud and this being an unfair election. Um, do you see that similar mirroring in Myanmar and were perhaps the military leaders inspired by President Trump's comments, or how has the international community um, compared these two events? Well, you know, it's it's really hard to say for sure. But as you point out, the parallels are you know are, are quite uncanny. I mean, you you have a, um, I mean, the difference in Myanmar, of course, is that 
you know, the NLD won a landslide victory. We're talking about 83% of the um, seats that were up for election on November the 8th. Um, and so we have a situation in which, you know, even if there was some fraud, even if one was to accept that, it would have to be on such a massive scale and the rigging would have to be so, um, you know, universal um, for it to have had any re result, uh, impact on the result. Whereas in the United States, the election was close. Um, and so there was, you know, it was, it was a situation in which um, the claims of voter fraud had to be taken much more seriously, um, given that it would only require a couple of states to, you know, reassess or, or, or you know, reverse their results to um, deliver Donald Trump a second term. Um, we, we can't really, you know, say that there's any connection between them. Um, but I think it, you know, it's, it's definitely the case that when, you know, the United States, um, you know, experiences problems like this, challenges to its electoral authority, to the legitimacy of its democratic system, then that is something that's going to be felt abroad. Um, you know, pe pe leaders abroad will, um, you know, uh, will probably revel in the fact that the US no longer has the moral standing to lecture them about their own democratic systems and their own backsliding. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, what happens in the US does matter globally. Great. And kind of turning our eyes to what's actually happening in the ground in Myanmar. I know you, you kind of answered, you talked a little bit about this with Fabi's first question, but I'm, I'm wondering how has the life changed for the average Burmese citizen since the coup a couple weeks ago? I mean, there's that famous video, right, of the fitness instructor in front of the the tanks, and she's just going about her business as usual. But I'm wondering, um, since then, how has life changed um, for the average citizen since the military has taken over? Well, in many parts of the country, you know, ordinary life is sort of ground to a halt. I mean, you have, you know, um, an es estimated three quarters of Myanmar's one million civil servants um, walking off the job uh, in protest against the coup. You have large crowds in many cities and towns. Um, you know, spot fire protests occurring across the country, um, and 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 we, you know, you see, you know, a remarkable unity. I mean, anti-coup sentiment seems to bridge every social, political, and ethnic divide in a country that it has many of these divides. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think for a lot of people in Myanmar, especially young people, you know, the country's emergence out of military rule in 2011, um, even though it was very limited uh, in certain ways, um, the military preserved for itself, you know, control over key ministries, you know, there was no civilian oversight of the military and the military had a quarter of seats in parliament reserved for it, or for its candidates. Um you know, the reality for a lot of people in Myanmar, particularly, particularly urban dwellers, you know, um, was quite positive. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the censorship of the media was abolished. Internet access was, you know, spread rapidly. People all of a sudden had access to, you know, much more information from the outside world and enjoyed a lot more freedoms, you know, in their day-to-day -day lives. And I think also, that, you know, the fact that Myanmar was this international pariah state for so many decades... Um, you know, it, a lot of people were very proud that their country was sort of jo joining the ranks of, of sort of the, you know, the, the international community, the rest of the world, and was no longer a byword for repression and autocracy. And I think that what's happened now is that, you know, the country's lurch back into direct military rule has, you know, you know, has, has angered a lot of young people who, who had grown used to this. Um, and, you know, these 
having experienced this, you know, even even these limited amounts of freedom that the the reforms that began in 2011 brought, um, people are very loath to give up those freedoms. And and you know, I think this explains the tenor of the the protests that we're seeing in the streets now. Yeah. So we talk about these thousands of people all across the country coming out. And I think it's really interesting. You said that it was a very unified front. Um, what, and kind of over the weekend, there's been reports of military crackdowns, like shutting down of the internet, um, them becoming, uh, more serious with regards to these large scale protests. So what has the military crackdown looked like since these protests emerged? Well, there's been a number of things. The military has firstly, you know, introduced amendments to the penal code, to the criminal procedures code, which give it additional powers to arrest and charge people involved in protests or civil disobedience actions. We've seen, um, you know, the return of late night arrests, you know, a, a, a terrifying feature of the old um, junta days. Um, you know, I think the, it's estimated that around 400 people have been arrested, but, you know, th- these, I think it's widely acknowledged that these numbers, you know, are, are lag behind um, the very rapidly developing situation on the ground. Um, there, you know, the government has, you know, exercised what appears to be increasing controls of internet access. The last two nights have seen blackouts from midnight until 9am. Um, and the government is also readying cybersecurity legislation, which was previously in draft form, but they're pushing it through in order to, you know, tighten control over um, the online space. I mean, they, they recognize very clearly that this young generation, you know, newly linked together with Facebook and other, um, you know, social media and messaging tools, um, you know, is, you know, that the internet is crucial for the continued organization of these protests. And so that, you know, they're thinking that by, by, you know, tightening their control over it, they'll, they'll slow the spread of this anti-coup sentiment. Um, uh, and there, you know, there's been in recent days the deployment of tanks and troops in the streets. Um, you know, the signs of, you know, um, muscle flexing on the part of the Tatmadaw. It's designed to sort of frighten people into um, into compliance and to, into, you know, into accepting the new status quo. And you know, what the real fear is that the Myanmar military will seek to use violence to put down these protests. I mean, you know, it has a long track record of using violent means to crush popular uprisings. Um, it did so in 1988, um, famously, again in 2007 during the so-called Saffron Revolution. And, you know, around Myanmar's periphery, um, which is inhabited by a lot of ethnic minority groups that have been fighting for autonomy and independence from the central government for decades, um, the military has used, you know, the most you know, repressive means to sort of, you know, establish its control in these regions and to, and to put down these rebellions. Um, and so, you know, the, the things things look worrying. The military seems to be girding itself for a long struggle. The protests continue to spread um, in defiance of curfews and other restrictions that have been imposed. And so, really, the you know the two sides appear to be on a collision course. So, my last question about events on the ground is that um, over the weekend, I was reading reports that there was a mass release of around twenty five thousand prisoners um, in Myanmar. Can you explain to us what? that was about and what happened there? Well, I mean, we can only speculate. So February, um, I think it was uh, February the 5th was Union Day in Myanmar, which is an important, you know, um, you know, an important holiday. And often, the, you know, these, this is the occasion for, you know, prisoner amnesties. Um, this is, this is uh, not unusual in itself, but the release of such a large number of prisoners um, 
as the protests are beginning to gather steam suggests, you know, you know, a couple of worrying things. Firstly, is that they're clearing space in the prisons for political prisoners. Um, the second is that, you know, a lot of criminals that have been released from prison may be doing so in exchange for cooperating in helping to repress um, these protests and intimidate protesters. Now, this is a strategy that the old junta used on occasion of paying sort of, you know, um, thugs and criminal elements to, you know, to to attack pro-democracy pro protesters and intimidate them into silence. We've already seen reports coming out of, you know, of, of young men, um, you know, rough young men being deployed in areas of Yangon and other Myanmar cities, um, uh, you know, to to kind of yeah, it, it, with the intention of intimidating, um, you know, people that are opposing the coup, and, and you know, and, and so in these sorts of strategies, um, these underhand strategies of sort of you know um, forcing people into silence and quashing, um, you know, uh, widespread protests is you know are, are very much part of um, the Myanmar military's playbook. Um, you know, it's also been reported that the, and I, but although I've I've struggled to actually confirm this, that the prisoner amnesty also included um, sort of right wing nationalist demagogues who you know were who turned themselves in prior to the election in November, um, and so you know the possibility that nationalist political figures, including Wiratu, the you know uh, ultra nationalist monk who has expressed very bigoted opinions towards Muslims and, and, and expressed, you know, hostility toward Aung San Suu Kyi's government, uh, the, you know, the, the prospect that these figures could be mobilized in order to sort of whip up nationalist hysteria in support of the new junta government um, cannot be discounted as well. So moving us towards the international sphere, the Biden administration recently announced a new round of sanctions against military officials in response to the coup. How strong of a response is this by the United States? And how might it affect the calculus of the Burmese military leaders, if at all? Well, I think as a first salvo by the U.S. government, you know, it's fairly, it, it, you know, it sends a strong message. It's, it's targeted individuals involved in the military takeover and me members of their families and imposed sanctions against three gemstone companies, very lucrative gemstone companies controlled by the military. Um, it seems that these sanctions have been carefully crafted to avoid blanket um, damage to the Myanmar economy. I mean, one of the lessons that we learned from the past era of military rule when there were very harsh Western sanctions against Myanmar is that these sanctions function mostly to impoverish the Burmese people and, um, you know, without really directly um, affecting the interests of those in charge. So it's, it does seem like the Biden administration is trying to calibrate its approach in order to send a strong message and to try and sort of change the political calculus of those in charge. Now, how much it might affect them remains to be seen. I mean, the last era of military rule showed that, you know, for, for many years, the generals were able to, you know, were willing to withstand this sort of international pressure. Um, and, you know, even as it imposed harsh costs on the Myanmar people. Now, you know, it you know, Min Aung Lang, the leader, you know, the commander in chief of the military and the leader of the coup was already under sanctions um, connected with the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslims in 2017. And so, you know, for him personally, you know, th these sanctions won't have made much difference. Um, and clearly the sanctions didn't, you know, um, deter him from launching the coup. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the impact of these sanctions is likely to be minimal. And one of the dilemmas that the Biden administration faces is that it does have a 
you know, it has has sort of countervailing interests here. I mean, on the one hand, it feels it necessary to stand up for democratic principles, especially after having made such a big um, case for you know recentering democ- democracy promotion in American foreign policy after four years of of Donald Trump. On the other hand, it also is concerned about Chinese inroads in Myanmar, um, and you know, and about sort of offering the Myanmar government, whatever its ideological hue, a sort of you know, a, a, you know, countervailing sort of um, a counterbalance to you know China's proximity and you know uh, influence in the country. And so, really, you know, at the at the, at the minute, the, the Biden administration does find itself torn between pursuing values in Myanmar and also sort of securing its what might be described as its broader national interests um, or its perceived national interests in sort of um, you know. Courting Southeast Asian governments, you know, in order to sort of stiffen them against um, China's rise in the region. So, given this very complex picture that you're painting here, do you expect the United States to further respond or to kind of leave the situation alone and just stick to sanctions? Well, I, I do think that you know more sanctions will probably come, um, but it remains to be seen what the U.S. government will do if those sanctions fail to um, produce much change on the ground. I mean, you know, there's only. I think what we've seen over, you know, over the past decade is is that, you know, Washington's ability to dictate the course of events abroad um, is becoming more and more limited. Um, part of the reason is is China's reemergence as a as a you know superpower in the region. China now has the ability to substitute for. Western support for governments that come under fierce Western pressure over, you know, democratic backsliding or human rights abuses. And so we've seen, you know, it increasingly, you know, the U.S. finding it increasingly tough to, um, you know, to, to, to influence the course of events in these countries. Um, so, yeah, it really remains to be seen. I do expect more sanctions to be, you know, sort of incrementally dialed up as the months go by. If, if, if you know, if the current military government remains in place and doesn't back down, but it, you know, the ultimate effect of all of these things, um, and you know, the tension between broader American interests, you know, is likely to, you know, complicate things. And that kind of speaks perfectly to my next question, which is about China. So. Um, Chinese state newspapers referred to the events of February 1st, not as a coup, but a quote unquote major cabinet reshuffle. So can you talk to our listeners about this relationship between China's Communist Party and the military generals in Myanmar and the incentives that the CCP has to downplay the events of February 1st? Well, I mean, China's reaction to the coup is very much par for the course. I mean, you know, China's um, always claimed to respect nations, other nations' sovereignty, and and take a position of non-interference in their internal affairs. So, from the Chinese perspective, what happened in Myanmar on February first was an internal affair of the Myanmar government and military. It's not going to condemn. It's not going to praise. Um, and I think you know that China's always displayed a sort of you know a great deal of diplomatic flexibility in working with whoever comes to power in partner countries. Um, you know, China's not in the business of democracy promotion or, you know, um, or advocating for human rights. I mean, the Chinese government and many nations in Southeast Asia, it must be added, you know, view these ideas as, you know, uh, with some skepticism, in fact. Um, you know, th- this is an era, you know, oh, this is in a region where, you know, nations are in- increasingly, you know, um, hugely nationalistic with, you know, um, you know, nations that have a, you know, sort of a colonial, you know, a, a history of Western colonization by Western 
um, powers. And so they're very sensitive about, about being told what to do by Western governments. And so, you know, China has sort of tailored its approach to the region um, along those lines and sort of offered consistent engagement with the region's governments without sort of, you know, imposing any uh, conditions on how they should govern themselves internally. So the Chinese reaction, you know, is very much, um, you know, par for the course, as I said. Um, but this is not necessarily a good thing for China. I think that the Chinese were caught off guard by this move. I think there's a perception in Beijing that the Myanmar government is a very unpredictable and volatile partner. Um, and that, you know, I think, you know, the, the Chinese had, you know, initially um, recommended to the generals that they liberalize their system to some extent. Um, and, you know, in the interests of stability and normalcy um, back before 2011. Um and so I think, you know, and the China, China had also in, invested a lot of uh, diplomatic energy in courting Aung San Suu Kyi and developing a relationship with her. She was in some ways better for China in, in the sense that she was a leader with democratic legitimacy who could better sell the Myanmar public on controversial Chinese infrastructure projects and so forth. And so, you know, it's also worth remembering that the Myanmar military has an ingrained suspicion of China. Many of the leading commanders of the military got their start. Um, fighting com uh, China-backed China communist insurgents in the northern hills of Myanmar. Um, and the Tatmadaw, you know, retains a, a deep institutional suspicion of Chinese intentions, particularly China's relationship to ethnic armed groups um, that occupy territories lying alongside the Chinese border. Um, so, you know, w even though China will be flexible and, you know, um, adjusting to this new state of play in Myanmar, it is going to, you know, the, the relationship with the new mil military junta is not going to be without its tensions. That's really interesting because I feel like a lot of the stuff I was reading online was about kind of is Myanmar leading towards U.S. democratic values versus China's more authoritarian values. But it sounds like what you're saying is it's a lot more complicated than that and that yeah. Yeah, China really is. values the stability of Myanmar, um, even if that's in the form of Aung San Suu Kyi. Right. Yeah, I think that's the case. So kind of moving away from the U.S. and China, um, are there any other external powers such as Japan or Southeast Asian neighbors that um, have a strong opinion about the recent events there or have a potential to have a strong influence um, in this situation? Well, Japan is, you know, one of the major investors in Myanmar. You know, it's it's closely involved in developing infrastructure in the country. The Japanese have been very, you know, ever since Myanmar sort of began to politically reform itself about a decade ago, the Japanese were at the front of the line in in sort of engaging with the new civilianized government. Um, and and part of the calculus in Tokyo is, of course, to sort of offer Myanmar an alternative to China. Um, so recently, you know, just last week, a senior Japanese official said that, you know, imposing sanctions on Myanmar would simply drive it into the arms of China. So Japan has, you know, continued along its, um, you know, with its strategy of pragmatic engagement. Um, you know, a similar thing can be, you know, is true of India too. I mean, India has a more limited present economic presence and political influence in Myanmar, but it is, you know, one of the country's traditional partners, um, but the Modi government has so far indicated that it's, you know, um, you know, will continue to engage with Myanmar and is not going to, you know, condemn the coup in the sort of strong way that the Indian government did 
you know, when the Myanmar military used force against protesters in 1988, at that time, India was very, was quite vocal in, um, you know, in, in, in condemning what was happening. And so, you know, I think that, you know, India and Japan both have concerns about Chinese inroads in Myanmar. And I think that for the countries and other powers in the region, you know, this is sort of the overriding um, question at the moment. And, and, and they would probably argue that, you know, it makes no sense to talk about democratizing Myanmar if the country is, you know, wholly reliant on China and none of us have any influence in the country. And I think this is one of the risks of Western sanctions is that it sort of alienates the new government from Western powers um, and really deprives them of a say in how Myanmar, you know, handles, you know, not just, you know, um, the, the political trajectory of the of the post-coup military government, but also the more fundamental challenges the country faces around ethnic inclusion, um, you know, the conflicts that, you know, continue to simmer around the country's periphery and, you know, the fundamental challenge of trying to, you know, incorporate all of the country's ethnic minorities you know, into into a into the Myanmar state in an inclusive way. Um, this is something that the country struggled with since independence, and you know, it, it's something that um, you know uh, will persist. It's a challenge that will persist regardless of who is in power, whether it's the military or the elected NLD government. All right, and just to close this out, so between 2010 and 2016. Myanmar transitioned from direct military rule to a more democratic system of government, as you said. And of course, the military still held the true levers of power. But with the coup and the trajectory of Myanmar in terms of governments, governance, international orientation, and domestic society has become extremely uncertain. When may these deep questions become relatively clearer, and what events might signal the military's future intentions? Look, it's a very hard question to answer at this stage. The military has claimed that it will hold an election in one year's time and then pass power on to whichever party wins it. But there's a lot of questions um, to be asked about exactly what that process will look like, what restrictions they'll introduce, what constitutional amendments um, they will uh, pass between now and then that give them an advantage and um, you know uh, ensconce them in power uh, in a more permanent way, you know. So we really don't know what this is going to look like, or even if they will hold elections in one year's time. And this is not an institution whose word can be taken um, for granted. And so, you know, I think that it's important to recognize that, you know, in some ways, the lack of democracy in Myanmar, the struggle with military rule, sits downstream of a more profound challenge to do with nation building, and, you know, the legacies of British imperialism, and the difficulty of forging a unified state in the current, um, you know, across the current geographic span of Myanmar. I mean, this is a, you know, the shape of Myanmar as it appears on the modern map, you know, never existed before the British withdrew in 1948. Um, you know, there has never been a central state that has had authority over this, this, this complete territory. Under the British, a lot of ethnic minority areas were given a huge amount of autonomy. Um, you know, and prior to that, you know, the pre-colonial Burmese kingdoms never exercised direct control all the way up to the extent of Myanmar's current um, uh, national borders. And so since 1948, you know, a, an ethnic Burman dominated central state, dominated, of course, by the military, has sought to build a state and extend state power into these outlying regions of the country, um, you know, and, and you know, 
because of other legacies of British imperialism, which I won't get into, you know, it's had a very chauvinistic view about, you know, the, the, the centrality of ethnic Burman institutions and traditions and culture to, you know, the, the state of Myanmar. And so, you know, th- and this has been resisted by peoples living in the periphery. Ethnic minorities of various kinds have taken up arms. Um, some of them have been fighting almost, you know, nonstop since independence in 1948. And so, you know, the military's, you know, uh, centrality in Myanmar politics in some ways can be explained as a solution or an attempted solution, a very poor attempted solution to the question of how to sort of bring the country under, um, you know, central state control and develop, um, you know, to, uh, you know, to build a nation um, out of these, you know, the, this, this vastly diverse country. Um, and so, you know, without addressing that more profound, deeply rooted issue, um, you know, the country, the, the sort of the question of who reigns in, in, uh, Naypyidaw or who, um, governs in Naypyidaw is going to, you know, it's, I, I don't want to say it's irrelevant because for huge amounts of people, it's very relevant. And it has led to the transition to civilian government led to huge improvements for many people in Myanmar. But it's more just to point out that behind this question of sort of the military's role in politics and will, is Myanmar an electoral democracy or, you know, a military dictatorship looms the more complicated question of how to build an inclusive country and how to overcome the racial and religious and ethnic divisions that have, you know, plagued Myanmar for, you know, the seven decades since independence. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sebastian. This has been a really insightful conversation, and I think it'll leave us all with a lot to think about. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program and the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA, that's at Hopkins P-O-F-A, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest of our content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and feel free to leave us a rating and a review. We'll see you next time.